you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Thank you. Well, peace be with you. My name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose. Really glad to welcome you to 2024 and to Sojourn Montrose this morning. Just to reiterate the welcome that Cole gave at the very beginning, we would love for you to plug in here to to root into our community. And the best first, well, the best next step, your first step was coming here. Your second step would be to um, meet us in the hallway as we conclude this morning. To my right, your left, there's a map there. We'd love to kind of show you where our communities are meeting during the week and, and hopefully find one that works on a night that works for you or is in a location close to where you are um, so we could um, possibly connect you with the leaders of that parish, we call them. And, and those are just where we're gathering together during the week and learning what it looks like to follow Jesus together, whether that's just through a meal or prayer and fellowship or opening our Bibles together or checking in on one another. Um, all sorts of stuff happen at those. So we'd love to invite you to that. Um, and a second announcement is that next week we only have one gathering at 10.30 a.m. And that's because the Houston Marathon is next week. Um, so that means the marathon basically runs all around this building which means that like six people could come to the gathering uh, at 9 a.m. But most of those roads are open by 10.30. Is anybody running the marathon? Raise your hand. Yeah, let's give it up. So we'll see y'all at 10.30. Um, Just kidding. Uh, yeah, give it up for, for them. Um, and, and this actually means that if you are in the neighborhood, you, you might have a chance to go walk and cheer on some of these brothers and sisters as they run for various causes and um, for personal development as well, um, and still make it to the 1030 gathering. So just know that next week, if you get here at 9, there'll be a sign on the door, the door will be locked, um, that we'll be just gathering once at 1030 a.m. It's kind of one of those things that every year I wish we had thought to do, and then we forget, and then we get here at 9. I have to like beg the police officer to let me cross the path, uh, the, the marathon path, and I get here and like nobody's here. So um, really glad that we remembered this year to do that. Um, as you heard, Victoria just talked or, or spoke the word of the Lord. Um, we're in a new series this morning, and it's um, following the life and person of Abram, who becomes Abraham. He's given a new name in a couple chapters. Um, so we're not there yet. We're just beginning the story of Abram. And this is going to take us all the way through Easter. So we, we have never, as a congregation, spent extended time in Genesis. This is kind of our first time spending 16 weeks in Genesis. Um, and we're going to be looking at Abram's life. So let me pray for us, and then we'll start to... Um, We'll start to discover who he is and what God has promised him in these first few verses of his introduction. Lord, we, um, I ask that you would meet us here in your word with your wisdom. Would you speak to us through your word and through my feeble lips? Would you use what I say that's imperfect or incorrect even um, to speak your correct, beautiful truth? And would, you prom- would the promises of Abram this morning settle in our hearts as um, your word for us. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't for us. And when we see um, how these promises have been fulfilled and how they speak to your whole story from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible, would we feel your power and goodness and would we rest in the truth of your word this morning? Um, I pray for those who run next week, uh, that you would be their strength and their guide. I pray for all of us 
um, as we run our various races in life in 2024. Um, I pray that you would be with us and near us. And if there's any in the room who don't know you, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them this morning or this year. Um, We need you, Lord, to do these things. You call us, so we invite you to do that. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, like I said, um, we begin this new series on the life of Abram this morning, but this starts in the first book of the Bible called Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, so everything in Genesis up to this point of Abram's life is about creation, all of the creation of the world, and about early human activity. So we've seen kind of how humanity has um, grown and what they've done in the first uh, 10 or 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And at this point, we've arrived in Genesis to a man named Abram, and the rest of Genesis is going to be about Abram and his family. He's going to turn in, he's going to be renamed Abraham, um, and his name means father or exalted father. Abraham means father of nations. So he's going to change into that name eventually because of this promise and then a covenant that God makes with him. Um, but we're going to see how Abram, Abraham, and his son Isaac and Jacob become this nation, the nation of Israel. And then we're going to see how the rest of the Old Testament is about this people. Really, the, the rest of the Bible is about the people of God and what God has done to redeem them. And so this is the beginning of that, of that little seed that turns into this huge people that includes us today, God's people. And so since I have the task of introducing Abram to our congregation this morning, um, I think I need to do a little bit of work to catch us up on Genesis to this point because a lot has happened. And Abram is a result of the call of Abram, the promise of Abram is a result of all that's happened up to this point. So... Um, Let me give us a little bit of background in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, if you started a reading plan on January 1st, you are aware of what Genesis 1 is about. Genesis 1, the Bible starts and talks about God's creation of all things, of light and darkness, of the earth and the sea and all the creatures. And it ends with God's creation of man in Adam and then Eve, who becomes the jewel of his creation. We see God rest on the seventh day and decree that all of his creation is good. And in so doing, he plants man, he plants Adam Adam and Eve in this garden, the Garden of Eden, and gives them the, the charge to have dominion over the garden, to have dominion over this land, and to be fruitful and multiply, to, to multiply their offspring in this land. In the garden, there is one rule. This is a covenant God makes with Adam. The rule is this, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and for obeying that task, you will have perpetual eternal life. You will have a perpetual eternal dwelling with me in the garden. You will not be cast out. You will not die if you do not eat from that tree. Yet, we know the story of the fall, that Eve and then Adam are tricked into sin. They deny God's authority and good rule. And therefore, an event happens which is called the fall. They become aware of sin and shame and death, and those things enter their world. They hide from God. And as a result, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They no longer have perpetual life. Sin and death, as a result, have entered the world. But before they do, Adam, before they are sent out of the the garden, rather, Adam and Eve are promised that through Eve's seed, Through her lineage, one will be born who will redeem mankind from this fall. That's called, that's Genesis 3.15, that the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head, will crush Satan's head. 
outside of the garden, um, we see the first murder, brother kills brother. And mainly throughout Genesis, as Genesis unfolds, we have story after story of unfaithfulness, sin, of failure of mankind. And then after 10 generations from Adam is a man named Noah who is born. And that, you might know, is the story of Noah's Ark. So 10 generations from Adam to Noah, sin had reached this global outbreak, this global tipping point, and God intervenes and he decides to use a global flood to wash away all wickedness, to destroy all sin and evil that the earth has, um, sp- that is spread over the earth, and God recreates humanity through a new Adam, now named Noah. So So at Noah, there's this recreation, right? Noah is this new first man who steps off the ark and and has the land out in front of him, and there's no other humans on the earth. There's no sin. There's no wickedness. And how does does Noah fare? Well, we know that almost instantly the world increases in sin once again. Sin spreads throughout the next few chapters of Genesis at this point. And then sin reaches a new tipping point at this event called the Tower of Babel where um, all the humans sinfully pull together and they decide they want to make their name great and they want to become like the gods. And so they build this tower as a monument to their pride and selfishness and the achievement of humanity and therefore the lack of need for God. And God intervenes and spreads humanity all across the earth, changes the language of the people there so they can't work together and what happens is they don't become righteous. What happens is that sin, therefore, spreads across the face of the earth. It doesn't stop an outbreak of sin. It just stops man's achievement as a monument to their sin, right, in the tower. And instead, the earth is now covered with sinful humans. But here in chapter 12, we have the third creation story of Genesis. And like that, it's been, um, it's been 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and now it's been 10 generations from Noah to Abram. So we're supposed to see, oh, okay, it takes about 10 generations for the, for the world to become utterly sinful. <laughs> it takes about 10 generations for sin to have spread across the face of the earth once, and then 10 more generations, sin has now spread across the face of the earth again. So what will God do? Will God destroy the earth? No, he doesn't, because if you remember, when God saved Noah through the flood, through the ark, God promises, he makes a covenant, rather. It's not a promise. It's stronger than a promise. It's called a covenant that he will never again destroy the whole earth. He will never again wash away the entire earth in his wrath. And so God does intercede, but this time he doesn't destroy. He gives his intercession and recreation comes through a promise. His recreation comes through a promise through Abram. This promise is going to work itself out through our text this morning. And really the rest of this sermon series is about how this promise comes to pass for Abram and his family. And actually, this promise is a foundational promise for the people of God and the whole arc of redemption that is found in the Bible. The pattern is this, creation, fall, increasing sinfulness, God's intervention and recreation. It happened through Noah, and now we're seeing the same thing happen through Abram as he's introduced. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we should look and see who is Abram? Who is this person? Let's read chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. It says this, Now these are the generations of Terah. 
Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, his son, uh, of, or the son of Haran, rather, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they got to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were two, 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So if Terah, this father of Abram, Terah means delay, and uh, we see that he lives up to his name. He doesn't get to the land that he's supposed to go to. He delays and ends up in Haran. Um, Terah is Abram's dad, and we have Abram's brothers and his nephew Lot. And we know from um, Joshua that Terah's household worshipped other gods. So we're told later in the Old Testament that Terah's household worshipped other gods. And we know that people in Ur of the Chaldeans and people in Haran with people with names like this in the Old Testament um, typically were moon worshipers. So Terah and Abram are born in a house of people who worship the moon, which you can you could see as as far as early humanity goes that this would this would be something tempting to worship. That the sun and the moon rising at night and lighting things would be tempting things to worship. So um, Terah was a moon worshiper. But even before they left Ur of the Chaldeans, we actually know from the Book of Acts that. While in Ur, in the home of the moon worshiper Terah, God spoke to Abram and told Abram that his family would go to Canaan. That's in Acts 7, verse 2. So God was already at work in Abram. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence that Abram was participating in the worship of his family. In fact, he had heard Yahweh's voice while in Ur of the Chaldeans and knew that his family would be moving towards Canaan. And so the family sets out for Canaan, but like I said, they, they don't get there. They delay. Terah lives up to his name and delays in Haran, and they settle there, and we're not told why. We're just told they don't make it. They, they settled there. We're also introduced to Abram's wife, Sarai, whose name becomes Sarah. Sarai means princess. Um, she is barren. We're told this twice. We're told she is barren. She has no children. Um, it's an important feature of the story of Abram. It's emphasized here because a promise is coming in the next chapter, in chapter 12, that we're about to hear. A promise is coming for Abram that's incompatible with this fact. Abram will be made a great nation. His wife is barren. These are, these are incompatible facts. So that will have to be reconciled more as the story continues in the coming weeks. I won't deal with that just this morning because we will get to that story in the next, in the next few weeks. So that's, that's who Abram is. That's where he's coming from. He's now in Haran, and his father, Terah, has died. Um, his brother has died, so he's with his wife, and he's with his son in, or his nephew, Lot, and they're there. And in chapter 12, we get this massive intervention where God appears and speaks to Abram. And remember, for 10 generations, sinfulness has increased, right? The Tower of Babel um, 
scholars estimate either happened during Abram's life or a couple hundred years before. So it's somewhere between, it has just happened in Abram's relative life, at least in Terah's life. The Tower of Babel has, that event has occurred. And so sinfulness has increased, and now God has chosen a new, new Adam, not Adam or Noah, a new, new Adam, Abram, to create a people through, to give a land through, a garden through, to bless. God has chosen Abram, and we're not told why. The important thing is that Abram was chosen by God. It's the most important fact of this of his being chosen. So let's read at the beginning of chapter 12. It says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whom who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a wonderful promise here and so much to unpack. The Lord tells Abram, go, leave this land, the land of your family, the house of your father, and keep going until I show you the land that I will give you. So God, notice, God does not say go to Canaan or go to wherever. God just says go. And when you see the land, I'll tell you it's your land. Um, This is not a covenant God is making. God is making a promise. Covenants have, um, there are are things that both sides must do and there are penalties for breaking covenants and there are signs of covenants, sacraments of covenants. This is not a covenant, this is a promise. And this promise will be uh, fulfilled in a couple chapters when God makes that covenant. So it's just a a fuller, more, more, um, the stakes are higher in the covenant when God makes a covenant with Abraham. But for now, God is making a promise saying, go, I promise you these things. And as you go, I will do these things. There are three parts to this promise. Um, the first is land. The second is um, a great nation, a family. And the third is blessing and a blessed name. So land God says, I will give you a land that will be yours, a place to have dominion, a new garden, a new city. You will have a land. At this point, Abram has no land. He's living in the city of Haran, a city of moon worshipers, and he, there is no land of Abram. There is no land for his family. In fact, he has no children. He has a barren wife. But God is saying, I will give you a land. I will show you that land, and I will give it to you. Second, he says, I will make you a great nation, meaning through your offspring, through your seed, I will make a great family that becomes a great nation. Remember, this is comical because Sarai is barren. She can't have children. But God tells Abram, I will give you land, and a family in that land will become a great nation. And then third, God says, I will bless you, and your name will be great. But there's a stipulation here. The purpose of this blessing is that so you will be a blessing. Right? So it's not just you will be blessed, you will be blessed, you will be blessed. It's you will be blessed so that you can bless, so that you can bless, so that you can bless. And in fact, we're told here that all the families of the scattered nations of earth will be blessed through Abram. That's quite the promise. Land, nation, or offspring, and blessing. Think back to Babel, which just occurred, right? Man sought to make his name great without God, man sought to build a great tower as a representation of one great nation of humanity. 
But because man did this thing selfishly for selfish gain and for selfish great name um, and recognition, God scattered the people in their sin and changed their language so they couldn't understand one another. But because man did this, God is now saying in new creation, through Abram, through one man, 20 generations from Adam, God will make a new nation. God will make a new man's name great. God will make a new blessed people in order that they might bless these scattered, sinful, differently speaking nations. Right? Ultimately, the next 15 weeks of our series is about the fulfillment of these prophecies. And it's full of, I think, exciting twists and turns and unexpected realities along the way, but, but it's also full of sin. And if you study the whole Bible, you will see that these promises for land nation, and blessing do come true in the Old Testament to an extent or for a time, right? Like, think about um, the promise of nation. It's fulfilled. Abraham has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob through, the, through whom the nation of Israel is created. So there, there does come this nation of Israel, and eventually they get a king, and they prosper, and they're powerful, Kings come from Abraham's line, namely King David. Yet by the time of Jesus' birth, there is no nation of Israel. So we know that this is fulfilled for a time until Jesus is born. The promise of land is fulfilled. Israel does enter the promised land, but it doesn't happen until after Moses dies after the Exodus and Joshua allow, or leads the people of Israel into the land of promise, into the land of Canaan. But again, by the time of Jesus, this land is fully um, ruled over by the Roman Empire. There's no, there's no land for the people of God. They are ruled over by the time of Jesus. The promise of blessing is fulfilled even in Abraham's day. The family is very blessed with wealth, but, but I think largely the story of the Old Testament is the story of Israel squandering their blessing because of sin and really failing to be a blessing to the nations of the world. Israel never realizes the second part of what they're to do with their blessing. What is Israel to do with their power and their wealth and their might and their relationship with Yahweh? They're to bless all the families of the earth. Do they ever do that in the Old Testament? No. They never do it. So the promises of Abram here in chapter 12 are fulfilled in various ways, but partially. But by the time Jesus is born in Bethlehem, none of these promises are seeing any kind of real realization, right? Yet something happens through Christ that we're going to see over and over again in the story of Abram. And I want to highlight it this morning as a foundation for this sermon series. And it's this, that Jesus is, um, when Jesus is born, he is born fully God and fully man. And he's born in this lineage, in the lineage of Abram, of Abraham. Yet, he is without sin. And as God and as man, he accomplishes salvation for his people. He dies a death that they deserve, and he rises from the grave. See, Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the promised seed to Eve who would come crush the head of the serpent and create a new nation from within the nation of Israel, a holy nation, a royal nation, one people of God through Jesus, the seed of Eve are established. One nation, one people, one family. And Jesus does something with land that no one expected. He says, my people will go to all the ends of the earth. That the promised land of the people of God now in Christ is earth. 
It's the whole earth. It's the whole land. All of it belongs to Jesus. So the promised land for God's people is now the earth entire. And as for blessing, the preeminent blessing of the people of God is salvation. Not earthly riches, but the riches of love and salvation and rest and eternal life that come in and through Christ and his work. And our charge is what? Do we hoard up that blessing? Do we, do we hide it under, in, a, in a safe in our house? No, God tells us in Christ, go therefore and bless the nations. Bless every family on the face of the earth. This is the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore, and while you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them about me and what I've taught In so doing, you are fulfilling the role of God's people, which Israel never quite fulfilled. The church is fulfilling the role of God's people to bless the nations, bless all the families of the earth. How do we bless them? We share our blessing. What is our blessing? We know Jesus. So not only, like, you'll see how these these promises are fulfilled in Christ, right? But not only are they fulfilled in Christ, there's a day coming where these promises will be fully realized in Christ. So right now we live in between, already not yet. The promises to Abram have already been fulfilled in Christ, and yet they're not fully realized. What do I mean by fully realized? Well, there is a day coming where the seed of Abram King Jesus himself, who has made his name great, his fame great, will dwell among his people eternally, a great nation united in and through Jesus. There's a time coming where all the people in all of the earth will be the nation of God. That's when he returns. When all the dead in Christ resurrect in new life and new body and become the living nation of God, the great nation And what will our promised land be? Well, Revelation 21 tells us the new heavens and the new earth are the promised land. There's a time coming where after Jesus returns, Jerusalem will descend on, it says the great city descended on earth. What does that mean? It just means heaven and earth are not separate anymore. They're a combined place, a promised land. And who will have dominion over this new promised land, this perfect garden where Christ himself is king and dwelling among his people? The nation, the people of God, the church. And therefore, we will experience blessing upon blessing as it's heaped upon us, the ultimate blessing being eternal life, restored promise of the garden, right? What did Adam and Eve have in the garden? Eternal life. The restored garden will be heaven and earth itself as one, a new promised dwelling and domain for the people of God. And so this is... Our future, land, nation, blessing, that's our future. Until that day when he returns, the promises of Abram are fulfilled in Christ, but they're not fully realized yet. Y'all might not have thought that I was going to talk about Genesis all the way through Revelation this morning, but, but here we are. These promises are part of the united arc of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And one thing we teach and preach here at Sojourn, and we're not alone, this isn't something we came up with, Lord knows, that the Bible is one cohesive story. That the things promised to Abram are realized in Christ and therefore realized for us and therefore will be realized when he returns. This is one arc. This is one story of redemption. What has God done? What did God do through Abram? He recreated He's recreating a people, recreating a land, recreating a nation. What is he doing in us? 
He's recreating. He's recreating a people individually, corporately. He's making us into a people, a people he loves and delights in, a people he wants to share his kingdom with, a people he wants to bless with eternal life, and therefore a people who can bless the world by offering the love of Christ's salvation. This is our task. What do the people of God do from Genesis to Revelation with the blessing that they're given? Bless others. That is what we're called to do. I know we fail at this, but that is our call. So in the meantime, until Christ returns and these promises are fully realized, what do we, the church, do? What do you and I do? What do we do with this blessing? What do we do with these promises? How do we respond? Well, I think we can look at what Abraham said. Abram, and this is what he says, nothing. Abram says nothing. Instead, he just went. He just goes. God said, go, and I promise these things will happen to you. And our next verse is this, verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the place to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built here an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So Abram went. God says, go, and these are your promises. And Abram says, nothing, Nathaniel. Let's go. It's time to go. And as he does, he builds altars for Yahweh. He built one in Canaan. And when he builds one in Canaan, God says, this is the land that I will give you. And yet we're told Abram looks around and he sees it full of the Canaanites. And Abram has, as a 75-year-old, he has his wife and he has his nephew. And they have a few more people, we are told, that have joined this band of travelers. And so the... The subtext here is there's no way they could drive out the Canaanites from this land and acquire it for themselves and hold it for themselves. They're not an army. They're not a nation. He doesn't even have a son. So they build an altar for the Lord, which is a plant of the flag of Yahweh in the center of the land that he will deliver to them. And they sojourn on. But we're told Abram builds altars as they go. He worships God as he goes. So what shall we do? We shall obey. We should go. And because the promises are fulfilled in Christ, we can see that Christ has won for himself a people, a nation, the land of the earth entire, and has blessed us. And we should see how we can go offer to others the blessing of citizenship into the nation of God, the church. How does one become a citizen of God's people, the church, with Jesus as their king? How do you get your passport into this family? <laughs> how, do you, how do you become a citizen? Well, all you must do, all you must do is believe that you need him. You must believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did, that he is God and man, that he lived the perfect life of obedience and died a substitutionary death and rose again. And if you believe that you need somebody to do that for you, you have been granted heavenly citizenship, eternal citizenship, 
citizenship in the kingdom of God. Because when you do, you will no longer be condemned for your sins, which are many. I know your sins are many because I know myself. Our sins that increase all the more as we live our lives. We won't be condemned. Instead, Christ's life will be applied to us, and that's good news because his life is perfect and holy and righteous, and it's also good news because he died the death that we deserved because of our sin. And yet if you simply just say, I need that, if you simply ask, you will receive. All you need to do is express your need of him. This is, um, it, it feels exclusive sometimes to be a Christian, right? But uh, this is a tangent, but I'm going to do it. Um, it feels exclusive, but, but the world largely believes the lie of morality, right? I, I know some people don't, but they largely believe that, well, if there is a God, and I've done enough good to outweigh the bad, then I'll get in. That's not the message of Christianity. It's never been the message of Christianity. Praise God for that. Because it might seem inclusive, but their mode of morality, the world's mode of salvation, is much more exclusive. Whose mode of salvation can save the murderer? Christ's. Whose mode of morality can save the thief? The rapist, the adulterer, the wickedest person you can think of. Christ can save that person. So Christianity has an open door for those people. But the world says, well, maybe we'll just be good enough. Good luck. Good luck. All you need do is say, I need him. And he will cover you. As if you hid from a storm in a cave, he saves you and covers you if only you come to him. This is why we, brothers and sisters, are blessed with Christ. Christ has saved us, and therefore the charge is simple. Go, go, don't hide that message. Don't hide that truth. Don't hide the loveliness that anybody, wicked as they might be, or just self-righteous, building their own little tower on their own little house to their own little kingdom so that they can be their own little God. Like, just go to them and tell them, I'm a sinner like you. Invite them into citizenship. There's only one path, and it's open to all. All families of the earth are invited. And, and nobody who's perfect is allowed in. Right? Because none of us are perfect. The perfect one, Christ, is already in, and he is our ticket in. And, and the reality is, if you're looking for a church of perfect people, then you're in the wrong place. Right? If you're looking for a place where there aren't hypocrites, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to the wrong guy. If you're looking for a place where people don't mess up, you're in the wrong place. Keep looking, and in fact, good luck. Let me know what you find. Like, the church is a broken hospital of folks who need a savior. We know we need a work of salvation. We know we need a blessing. We know we need to made into something new because this old way, this old body, this old flesh hasn't gotten me anywhere. But in Christ, when Christ works through me, when Christ loves me, when Christ works in me, when Christ works for me, when Christ blesses me, that's something entirely different. So we aren't perfect, but we are different. We are growing in holiness, and therefore we are growing in wholeness. 
becoming more and more and more the people we are meant to be because we become more and more and more like the person we're supposed to follow, Jesus. So if you're looking for a group of imperfect men and women to journey with, then you are welcome. We want you to be here. We want to bless you with the greatest news of all time. We are not that impressive. We are sinners. So are you. We need saving. So do you. We want you to be saved by Jesus. How will you respond? The promises of Abram are for us. Eternal blessing. New heaven and new earth. A people to belong to. A holy nation. The love of Christ the King, which is unwavering in light of your failures. The love of King is poured out now on his people. This is the message we go with. Scripture tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against this message. Scripture tells us the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. What is the image there? Who is attacking? We are. The church is on the offensive. Gates of hell means that the, the hell is shut up in a castle with gates up, but we're told Hell will not prevail against the church. The church is on the offense. And guess what? In Christ, the enemy has been defeated. Sin and death are no more. So for those in Christ, we respond in gratitude and joy and worship. We have been saved. And if you haven't take, taken that step of faith, you now know the cost of entry. It's not a high bar. In fact, it's admitting that your bar is way too high, that you could never measure up, and in fact, we're way down here. We need somebody. If you haven't taken that step of faith, I want to invite you to consider it this morning. And for us, the church, I want us to rest in who we are and to be like Abram. As we're called to go and therefore bless the nations, will we just go? Let's pray.